Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to chapter 40 of Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis 40 and 41. Marianne's already read Genesis 40 for us. And that's where I really want us to pick up. You'll notice the very last verse of chapter 40. Moses records for us that the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. When you read Genesis 40, you get a sense of exactly where it is that Joseph is. He is in a pretty low spot. He had an opportunity to minister to the uh, chief cupbearer and to the chief baker of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the ruler of Egypt, probably, perhaps, the most powerful entity in the world at that time. Joseph probably thought this is a pretty good shot if, uh, if his interpretation of the cupbearer's dream comes true. The cupbearer is going to be right back in the presence of Pharaoh, and he is going to give props to Joseph, and Joseph's going to get out of the situation that he's in. So when you get to the very end of chapter 40, and you read that the chief cupbearer didn't remember what it was that Joseph had done for him, your heart kind of sinks for Joseph. That's not at all what Joseph was hoping would happen. When you get to chapter 41, and you get to the first verse, And you read that two years later, Pharaoh himself has a dream. You're both at once feeling really sorry for Joseph. He spent two more years in that dungeon. Remember, even though he had a, he had a good place in the dungeon, he was the chief, he he was put in charge over the prisoners and over the, the prison itself. He was still a prisoner. He was still in that dark, dank place. So even though he'd risen to the top, he was still at the bottom. And then you read that Pharaoh had a dream, chapter 41, verse 1. Now, Pharaoh had a dream in which some cows came up out of the water. They were sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds, verse 2. And then seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile. They stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. And then Pharaoh woke up. And then he fell asleep, and he had another dream, verse 5. And there were seven heads of grain, healthy and good, and they were growing on a single stalk. And after them, seven other heads of grain sprouted thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads, and then Pharaoh woke up, and it had been a dream. And so Pharaoh is looking for someone to come, uh, his magicians and his wise men, and he told them the dreams that he'd had, but none of them could interpret the dreams for him. And so he keeps looking. Verse 9, chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, you know, I remember this guy. Um, and I kind of messed up. It says, I, I re, I'm reminded of my shortcomings. He says, Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker. Chief baker didn't fare so well, did he? 
in the house of the captain of the guard, and each of us had a dream, and there was this young Hebrew there with us. He was a servant of the captain of the guard, verse 12. We told him our dreams. He interpreted them for us, giving us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And the things turned out exactly the way he interpreted them. And so Pharaoh says, yeah, I want to hear from that guy. And so he sends for him. And Joseph comes from the dungeon. They shave him. They gave him a change of clothes and they sent him in before Pharaoh. Verse 13 or verse 15, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I had a dream. No one can interpret it, but I've heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Verse 16 is really important. Verse 16, Pharaoh replied to Pharaoh, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Here's his chance, Joseph's chance to say, I got you covered, Pharaoh. Just tell me what, tell me what the dream is. Yes, I can interpret dreams. It's the opportunity for Joseph to take all the credit and to put himself out there as the guy. And what does he do? I, you know, I, I mean, this is, this is what every, every guy that you see, um, I was listening to uh, on the way back from Auburn last night. We beat Arkansas 56 to 3, by the way. Sorry, can I get a War Eagle? Is there an, any? We're on the way back and they're interviewing one of the young stars, a, a freshman who scored three touchdowns. And, um, he had a, an amazing evening and they're interviewing him on the radio. And, and all he can keep saying is, I just want to thank God for giving me the opportunity. And I want to thank God. And just credit, just continues to, right? He's a young guy. It's his first radio interview ever. And all he can say is, I just want to thank God for what happened in this game and, and for giving me the ability to, to make these catches and to make those runs and everything. And, and this is, here's Joseph. He's interviewed by Pharaoh and all he can say is, I can't do it, but God can. To Pharaoh, the, the ruler of the ages. And all Joseph can come up with is, I can't, but God can. And so he goes on and he interprets the dreams for Pharaoh. And not only does he interpret the dreams, but after he interprets the dreams, which are essentially, there will be seven good years followed by seven years of famine. Really bad famine. Not just famine in your land, famine in every land. That's bad news for Pharaoh. I mean, this is the River Nile, okay? This is a, this is really a land that has it all. And he's telling Pharaoh, you're going to have seven amazing years followed by seven dreadful years. Not exactly the news you want to deliver to the most powerful man in the world. But he delivers it. And then he does what any good military officer would do. That is, he follows it up by saying, and oh, by the way, I have a plan for you, Pharaoh. He doesn't just give him the bad news. He gives him a plan. And he tells him exactly what he should do. Verse 33 is where I want to pick up. Pharaoh, and and now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. And they should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. 
And this food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt, so that when the country, so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials, so Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom this, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and he put it on Joseph's finger. And he dressed him in robes of fine linen and he put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in a, cha- in a chariot as his second in command, and all the people shouted before him, Make way! And thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephinah Paniah, and gave him Asneth, daughter of Potpharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and he traveled throughout Egypt. And during the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. And Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and he stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. And he stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asnia, daughter of Potpharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And the second son he named Ephraim, and he said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph said. And there was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. And when all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. And then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning, and we want to ask as we come to it, as we meditate upon it, And as I speak concerning it, may all of these things be acceptable in your sight for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to talk about Joseph's technicolored life this morning. We're just going to do two points. First, we want to talk about a struggle. Second, we want to talk about a stronghold, his struggle. If I asked you to describe what is Joseph's biggest struggle, what would you say? Now think about it. Think about where Joseph's been. What would you say is his biggest struggle? His family? We've talked about his dysfunctional family. We've talked about all that he went through with Jacob. We've talked about that situation. 
What about the sexual temptation that Jacob or that Joseph ran up against in the last chapter, chapter 39? What about his prison situation? That's a big struggle, isn't it? That's a big challenge in his life. Here is Joseph. He's done nothing wrong. He spent years in prison. Remember we described the prison last week? This isn't your, you know, U.S.-run federal penitentiary with three squares a day. This is a bad joint. What about just being wrongfully accused? That would be a challenge. Certainly these are all struggles for Joseph. Major obstacles that he had to overcome. Let me ask you, what about this? What about the second half of chapter 41? Is that a struggle for Joseph? In this section of the story, here is Joseph. He's been down, 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 down. His brothers played him for dead to his father, sold into slavery, sold again to Potiphar's house, challenged by Potiphar's wife, sent back to prison, multiple more years in prison, forgotten and left in prison. And then he has this rise that comes as he gives uh, Pharaoh an answer to his dreams. And then the second half of chapter 41 is the ascendant rise of Joseph in Pharaoh's house. Now, it's at this point that you're thinking to yourself, yes, finally Joseph gets what he deserves. I mean, after all, he's a child of the king, right? His daddy was Joseph, his daddy was, I mean, Jacob, his daddy was Isaac, whose daddy was Abraham. He's a son of promise. Yes. Joseph is finally getting everything that he deserves and so much more by rising to the number two place in Pharaoh's house. And yet I would submit to you that Joseph's biggest struggle is not prison, it's not his family, it's not his, you know, the the sexual temptation that came his way, it is rather This rise to the number two position in Pharaoh's house. That is Joseph's biggest struggle. That is Joseph's biggest challenge. You see, if the story... Marion and I earlier this week were asking ourselves, why does does Joseph's story slow down and and almost come to this play-by-play for us? In, in the book of Genesis, why does his story get so much airtime, so much airplay? Why does it slow down to this minutia that it does? And one of the reasons is that it's not about Joseph. Joseph's story is merely a vehicle because remember what the book of Genesis is about. The book of Genesis is about a sovereign God Choosing for himself a people and a land. It's about a covenant-making God who has this relationship. It's all about him. And Joseph is one of 
a number of sons who are a part of the seed of promise. They are a member, they, he is a part of this covenant community, and he's tied to a land that he's no longer in. And so if the story is only about Joseph, then chapter 41 is Joseph's big moment. It is the big payday. But if the story is about something other than Joseph, about a covenant, about a seed, about a land, then chapter 41 is not the big payday. Chapter 41 is the big challenge. And I would submit to you, it's Joseph's big challenge. It's his big struggle. Moses really sets it up for us. And there are a number of contrasts that appear in chapter 41. I want to call your attention to them. First, there's a pagan king in opposition to the patriarch's house. Think about where, think about Joseph. He's gone from looking after the affairs of Jacob in the promised land, in his father's house, to looking after the affairs of the king of Egypt. The reality is, however, that even given his rise and prominence in the land of Egypt, he is still what? A slave. Yes, he's risen to the number two position. Yes, nobody does anything in all of Egypt without Joseph giving the word. And yet... Even there in the land, he's a Hebrew. He's a slave. He's just been given this position. But his person, his, his overall title, he will never assume the number one post. Joseph would never become Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Because he's a Hebrew, because he's a slave. And so here he is in this land. And the contrast is that back in the land of Canaan, he had control. Back in the land of Canaan, he was free. Back in the land of Canaan, he was in the land of promise, in the family of promise. And he had absolute control. His father sent him out to have complete control of his affairs. And here he is, the number two position in all the land of Egypt And yet, he's still a slave. In Jacob's house, he was a beloved son. In Pharaoh's court, he's still just a slave. He's beneficial to Pharaoh for what reason? He's beneficial to Pharaoh because God's presence is with him. Because God is blessing him and what he does. He's not beneficial to Pharaoh because he's a great guy and he got a Harvard you know, MBA and he knows how to run a country. He's beneficial to Pharaoh because God's blessing is on him. Here's the second thing. In the story, there's, there's right at the beginning is Pharaoh invests Joseph with so much power. He's seen dressing him. Joseph begins to wear the garments. Verse 41, Pharaoh says to Joseph, here, I'll put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then he took his signet ring from his finger and he put it on Joseph's finger and he dressed him in robes of fine linen and he put a gold chain around his neck. 
Now, when you hear that, what do you think of? Has someone else dressed Joseph in his life? Do you remember the royal robe that he was dressed in, in Canaan by his father? Yes. And so Moses calls these images to mind for us. Because here he is wearing the pagan clothing of the king of Egypt. But back in Canaan, he wore the patriarch's clothing. He wore the coat that his father gave to him. And remember, one of the things that we said about that coat was not that it was probably a coat of many colors, but that it was a royal robe, probably one solid color, a beautiful robe given to him that signified a place of authority in his father's house. And so there amongst his brothers, Joseph was ascendant. He was loved by Jacob and given a place of authority. And so Moses contrasts these two. You have to wonder, with the ring and the robe and the garments and the gold chain, did Joseph ever think about the robe his dad had given to him? Did his mind wander back to the fact that Jacob had dressed him and how significant that was in the family? And how much pain it had caused in the end because his brothers envied him? What do you think all those Egyptians felt when they saw a Hebrew slave wearing Pharaoh's garments? He thought the scorn of his brothers was bad. What about the scorn of a nation watching a Hebrew slave rise to this prominent place? The picture's becoming somewhat clear, though, isn't it? Jacob, I mean Joseph, too many J's. Joseph is in the wrong land. He is dwelling in the wrong place. He is serving the wrong leader and the wrong nation. But he's there. Here's the third parallel that Moses draws. There's pagan worship versus the patriarch's adoration. Joseph had been given a dream earlier, back in chapter 37. Remember, he had two dreams. He, he, he was dreaming about the sheaves out of the field, and they were bowing down to him. And so he shared that dream with his brothers, and they thought, all the gall, you've got to be kidding that we are somehow going to bow down to you. And then he had a second dream. And you remember in the second dream, the stars and the moon, they were bowing down to him. And so he goes back and he tells that dream. And his dad, Jacob, is astounded. Really? Joseph, you're going to share that dream with us? Are we going to bow down to you? Are we going to show you some sort of adoration? And they couldn't get it. They, they didn't understand it. And, and they didn't listen to the dreams that were given to Joseph by God himself. And Joseph had interpreted them, them, had interpreted them that way. And so here we are, all the way into Joseph's reign in Egypt. And what is happening? The text says, as he goes out, as he rides in the chariot, what do they say? Bow the knee. Bow the knee to Joseph. Pharaoh has absolutely no trouble accepting. 
Joseph's dreams as coming from above. He has absolutely no issue with seeing Joseph and his God as connected together. When he goes to look for someone to run his land, what does he say? I want someone who's connected to that God. What are we doing? We'll just get Joseph. He's already connected to him. See, Pharaoh has no problem. Why? Because in Pharaoh's land, you can have a multiplicity of gods. In that land, yeah, we'll take this one, we'll take that one, I got this one, I got these guys. Well, they can't do it, this guy can. We'll bring him in. It's ironic that the king of Egypt was accepting of Joseph. And yet, Joseph's family wasn't accepting of Joseph. They weren't accepting of the message that God was giving to them through him. But Pharaoh was. Here's the fourth one. A pagan identity versus a patriarch's identity. You'll remember in the story, as we've worked our way through Genesis, what happens to these patriarchs as God calls them and changes them. They get a new identity. They get a new name. Abram from Abram to Abraham. Jacob from Jacob to Israel. Judah. Then you get here with Joseph. And what does he get? He gets a new name. The problem is, it's an Egyptian name. We don't know what the name means, but it's the wrong direction. (laughs) It's the wrong direction for Joseph to be receiving an Egyptian name as a Hebrew. And so, That contrast is drawn between the patriarchs having a new identity with their God, with Yahweh, and now here is Joseph in the land of Egypt getting an Egyptian name. The fifth contrast that is drawn in the passage is Joseph's situation with respect to a wife. We've already seen down through the book of Genesis that it wasn't okay, it wasn't acceptable for Abraham and for Isaac and for Jacob and for Judah. It wasn't acceptable for them to go out and to take wives from the nations around them. And so when Pharaoh goes and he gives a wife to Joseph, it's not okay. It's not the right thing for him to do. But there he is dwelling in the land and he's living in the land. and, And Joseph is probably thinking to himself, I'm never going home. I'm, I'm really never going back to that land. And so he agrees and he takes this wife. But it's in complete contrast to who he is and what he should be doing. And it's just another one of those situations in the land in which we say, Joseph's in the wrong place. He's in the wrong land in the sense that it would have been nice if he could have dwelled in the land of promise with the family and all of those things. But here he is in this land. And so there you see his struggle. His struggle is the same that every single person who's ever been called by God has. And that's this. That many times the challenge is 
instead of looking at the good things that are given, to look to the giver of the good things that are given. And that's often our challenge. The greatest struggle for Joseph in his life wasn't the cistern, it wasn't the prison, it wasn't the crazy wife of his boss. More than anything else, his rise in Egypt to the number two spot was Joseph's greatest challenge. Because it was the full reality that he had gone down to Egypt. Remember what we said earlier in the book of Genesis? It's never a good thing when you go down to Egypt. And here is Joseph. Not by his own will, not by his own design, but he has gone down to Egypt. And as he's gone down to Egypt, we see in all of these instances, he is more and more and more and more identifying with the land, with the people, with the culture. Now here's the question. Is he going to get sucked up completely? Is his life going to be so identified with being an Egyptian that he loses total contact with Yahweh, with the land of promise? What's going to happen to him? Would the covenant be wiped away? Would Joseph give in completely? Well, chapter 41 tells us about his biggest struggle. That is this identification with Egypt. But guess what? It also tells us about his stronghold. It tells us and gives us a picture about how Joseph is really doing with all of this. And it comes in the most unlikely place. And that is the naming of his children. And so I want you to see this. In the midst of all of this, what is Joseph going to do? It seems clear that God has not forgotten Joseph. The question is, has Joseph forgotten God? We read that he had two children, two boys, and he names them Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh means forget and Ephraim means fruitful. And here's how they're applied. It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And Ephraim. It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Let's look at these two quickly. First, Manasseh. When Joseph says, it is because God has made me forget all the trouble of my father's household, he isn't saying, I I have forgotten that house. I have forgotten my family. I have forgotten my father and all of that stuff. Yes, there were issues in that family. But that's not what Joseph's talking about. What Joseph is talking about is, I I choose and I have forgotten all of that junk that happened to me in my father's family. I have forgotten the way that my brothers treated me. That memory is being wiped clear from who I am as a person. Essentially what he's saying is, I choose not to live back there in those circumstances. I have forgotten all of that. And so... As he names his son, he gives him the name Manasseh. He doesn't give him an Egyptian name. He gives him a Hebrew name. And that's your first indication. Ah, Joseph hasn't given in completely to this life in Egypt. He hasn't forgotten. 
he still remains connected to his identity as a Hebrew. Then he names a second son, Ephraim. And he says, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The land of my affliction. He is the number two in command in Egypt. If chapter 41 is the ascendant rise of Joseph, how is this the land of his affliction? This is the land of his wealth. This is the land of him making it big. Yes, some things happened in prison, but are you kidding me? No. Instead, Egypt has become the land of his affliction. And that's the land that he is referring to. Right? God has given him this rise. God has made him fruitful in this place that isn't his own. In this land that he is not connected to. In this land that he is not a part of. Listen, this is a really important feature. Because what Joseph is saying here in calling Egypt the land of his affliction is to identify with another land. And what is the other land that Joseph identifies with in his heart of hearts? It's not Egypt. It's Canaan. That's the land that Joseph identifies with. And that's why he refers to this as his land of affliction. And that God has blessed him here in this land. And so he gives his second son another Hebrew name. That's why when you get to Hebrews chapter eleven twenty two, the writer points to Joseph's faith and he says this. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction, what? Concerning the burial of his bones. What did he tell them? Don't bury me in Egypt. Don't entomb me and leave me in Egypt. Because when God comes and He rescues us from this land, when He does that, would you please take my bones and bury them in the land of promise? Why? Because He's not connected to Egypt. His heartbeat is for the land of promise. Joseph's biggest struggle was to be in that land, but not be of that land. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, <laughs> as the people are going in to take possession of the land, there's an amazing little passage there. You can go and read it. The second giving of the law occurs. And then there's a remarkable little reminder for the Israelites. And essentially goes like this. Be careful. Be careful when you go in and take possession of the land. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt into this land. Be careful that you don't forget Him. Because you are going to inherit wells you didn't dig, homes you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, and all manner of other good things. And the temptation is going to be what? To take your eyes off of the one who brought you out of captivity and to put them on all the good things that God has given to you. Let me ask you this morning. Because this is the challenge for us as God's people. If you know the Lord Jesus, guess where your citizenship is? It's not here. 
It isn't Georgia. It's not Lake Oconee. It's not Greensboro. It's not Eatonton. Not Madison. It's not the United States of America. It's not any other country in this planet. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your citizenship is the new Jerusalem. Your citizenship is in a different land, a promised land, a a land yet to come. How tied to you are this country? How tied to you are you to this country? To a different land? How caught up is your heart in that? Listen, it is easy to take your eye off of the good giver of all the many good things you have and to look at those things and become mesmerized by them. That is a real challenge. Are you meeting the challenge head on? Is your heart beating for another land? Are you willing to name your children after the land? After the good God who has blessed you even in this land of affliction? It looks good, doesn't it? It looks like the big payday. It looks like the payoff. But what does God say? There is yet a land that is holding promise for us yet to come. Is that what your heart is beating for? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we want to thank you this morning for your word. We want to thank you for the story of Joseph that challenges us. It reminds us that, Father, first, you're with us. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. You're taking all of the difficult circumstances of life and you are weaving them into a tapestry for your glory. Second, you've blessed us with many good things. You've given to us a good land, but it's not the promised land. It is not the land that you are calling us to. In fact, it is the land of our affliction. And so, Father, we would pray that you would free us You would free us from the tendency to have our heart bound up in this land. And you would free us to have a heart for another land. A land that awaits us in the form of the new Jerusalem. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.